Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We caught up today with Joe Katarevac, CEO of Cobalt Blue Holdings. They're an ASX listed Cobalt developer. If you want our thoughts on that conversation, uh, their plans for this year, and indeed the company itself, you can find that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club, where you can also find detailed company reports. There is analysis from market experts from around the world on a variety of companies and commodities. That's exclusive to you. Uh, there are training videos on there to help you with your diligence. There are summaries of other interviews that we've done just to save you a bit of time. And of course, why don't you join our thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other in a nice, safe environment, free from abuse and trolling. How nice would that be? Uh, so that's at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Joe, how are you doing, sir? I'm very well. Thank you, Matthew, for having me on again. Well, Happy New Year. Hope you had a nice, restful Christmas. Indeed, indeed. I think we're all trying to, trying our best in this environment, but yes, it's very restful. Yeah, that was, that, was a, that was a tough one last year, I think. That, that was a tough one for lots of reasons. Um, but hey-ho, here we are. So um, nice to see. Now, you've um, quite kindly um, done a couple of Cobalt um, explanation-type shows for us, uh, but today we're going to talk about Cobalt Blue. Uh, again, we've had some good conversations in the past. So um, just for people new to the story, when you kick off, give us a one-minute overview, and then I'll pick it up from there. Sure, thank you. Look, uh, Cobalt Blue is a 100% owner of the Broken Hill Cobalt Project. So that's located in the uh, safe and stable jurisdiction of, of New South Wales, Australia. We're a very large um, uh, mine, integrated mine refinery concept, looking to make 3,500 tonne of cobalt metal, which is about uh, just under 18,000 tonne of cobalt sulphate. So that's uh, a 20 year mine life. Um, we're looking to make a very high uh, purity battery cobalt sulphate in that. Um, and we are now on the uh, effectively in the business end of a, a, a BFS or a feasibility study, if you like, with some in the near term, some very large proofs of our metallurgical processing. And in parallel with that, we're running a number of commercial partner uh, interactions, which I think will hopefully bear some fruit for us as well. So the, it, it's all about punchy near term deliverables and I guess within the next two years, delivering on that FS. Okay, so nice summary. We're going to get into the company proper in a, in a second, though. But the first question we always get asked um, when it comes to cobalt is they're phasing cobalt out of batteries. Why should I look at cobalt? So is that true? Uh, look, it is. Um, they're phasing cobalt out of batteries for really two broad reasons which ha haven't gone away. One is it's expensive. And uh, if you ask a boffin, why is cobalt in the battery in the first place? The answer is it doesn't add to the electromotive properties of the batteries. All it does is make it stable. So it's in your interest to have less of this high value product um, and make it a better battery. Unfortunately, there's only so much you can thrift out of the battery at the end of the day. So in some areas, in particularly the more commoditized EVs, the, the lower uh, price point EVs, particularly hybrids as well, where battery weight and scale doesn't really matter, you can get away with non-cobalt batteries and their inherent lower energy densities. But in the mass market, in particularly cold climates is the other issue with um, non-cobalt batteries don't fare as well in the cold temperatures. But in the mass market, um, mid-range to, to upper-range vehicles, it's it's a cobalt cathode. You, you can't get away with that. Okay, so there's going to be different use cases, different types of um, battery designs, uses by different automotive manufacturers. So uh, looking forward, the cobalt market is going to grow? Is it going to be static or is it in terminal decline? 
So look, uh, just under 60% of the of uh, cobalt demand goes into batteries, this chemical cobalt. Of that remaining 40, that rump, there is a large chunk in what's called super alloys, which are effectively cobalt as an additive to steels, al um, aluminium, uh, aircraft grade um, uh, frames, uh, gas turbines, etc. Look, there's no doubt that part of demand will take a big hit as a result of COVID. The, re the reality is not many new aircraft are being sold and operated in this environment. Um, but on the battery side, it's it's game on. Um, effectively, um, led by EVs with a much broader range of product, a much higher quality of product, led by infrastructure rollouts in all the key countries, and more recently, EV subsidies, these big batteries, 40, 50 uh, kilowatt hour batteries are going to consume a lot of cobalt. The other part of the battery industry there is uh, consumer goods, and that's chugs along at a GDP growth rate. That's your phones, your laptops, et cetera. And then the small but growing part of that is also energy storage systems, which is utility, but also household scale storage, particularly for photovoltaic or, or, um, or wind turbines. So um, the chemical part of that, the battery part of that, I think has a very exciting future. Okay. I, you know, most commodities always come, well, most companies who are in a specific commodity come on the show and they say, hey, look at the supply demand graph. Okay. And it's always demand outstrips supply. Um, in the case of um, cobalt, it's a very small market. We've talked about this, you know, several times in the past. It's a very small market. We've talked about it being um, opaque and volatile and all of those, all of those wonderful things. So you've got to get your data in different ways. So are you hearing anything on the ground? Because if I, if I look at the infrastructure required, the planning required, but all of these battery manufacturers, they need to have a view five years, 10 years out of what their the supply capability is. So are you getting, uh, are you having those sorts of conversations? Are you getting inquiries? Are you getting a sense of what the, the future demand is as far as they're concerned? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a great question because it's right now very topical. Um, where I think you and I spoke last year about the potential effects of particularly those EV subsidies that came out because of COVID and its effect on the auto industry. Um, that's always nice to speculate on how policy will impact industry. But what we're seeing, particularly in Q4, is that the EV makers are starting to ramp up their expectation of sales, particularly on a 22, 23 and beyond basis um, because of these subsidies. Um, that's then transferring in terms of uh, demand signaling to the battery makers. And bear in mind, with a lot of these newer models, battery makers have to pre-qualify their designs anyway. So that then puts further pressure on them. Now, the battery makers then asking their upstream precursor, cathode makers, et cetera. And all of that leads to our door and, or doors of, uh, of cobalt producers to say, well, when are you in production? What are you making and the quality? And interestingly enough, can we help shape that quality? Because no two battery makers make the same recipe at the end of the day. So we're seeing that now and the phone really has started ringing in the last two months. Um, and it's all about, hey, I've got a sudden deficit. I didn't have one two months ago, but now I've got a deficit on 2022, 23 view. Um, I need additional supply. What can you do for us? And, and, and if you can't do that timeline, when can you and, and what's the quality? Yeah, and it's interesting actually, because when you look at your share price, you've doubled. Since we last spoke, you, 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 in fact, you more than doubled in share price. It kind of says to me that people people know something. Um, 
in the, in the nicest possible way that people, people, don't, people, the market talks, right? Um, so if I if I look at the way that you're going about this one, because to me, 2020 was about you getting your house in order, as it were, putting the building blocks in place to allow you to to compete. So can we just talk about, let's go back over some old ground here in terms of what you did do, because we talked to the language of solving problems technically. We talked about pilot plants and getting samples out there and trying to uh, encourage partners into the conversation for future funding. So just give us a run through of what you think you achieved in 2020 before we kind of look towards the future. Sure. I think as a, as a broad description, we got on with business in 2020 at a time when it was difficult otherwise to do so. And it was difficult to maintain um, the focus on the cobalt market, given that it was collapsing. And also there were some big question marks by, uh, by some industry participants over its future. With a view on, of, on cobalt blue, uh, we started 2020 early and, and, and in, on the right foot because we completed the purchase of our project, the Broken Hill Cobalt Project. We moved to 100% ownership. Now that's a massive step forward and also just simplifies our interactions going forward. On the side, we managed to secure over 2 million of Australian government grant through the CRC project, um, which is the Australian government's way of saying, this is an interesting process that you guys have developed. Outside of your own project, we think that there's application to extract cobalt from other pyrite deposits or tails situations around Australia. And we know that from our own experience in both South Oz and, and in Queensland, where there's plenty of pyrite either in tails or still in resource. We also joined the Future Battery Industry CRC, which is a collaborative group of some very big participants in the battery industry. Uh, just to uh, be a bit indiscreet in naming one, uh, Nickel West, which is publicly in there, the, the BHP arm, and they're looking to make a nickel sulfate as part of their uh, interaction with the industry. Um, our contribution to that FBI CRC is with a C, with a cobalt in the NCM precursor um, uh, trial facility. So we're looking to make a precursor in Australia. On the government side, we delivered a scoping report and then were effectively granted um, the ability to start the state significant development approval process in New South Wales. That's effectively a fast tracking process to get into development um, and commensurate with the scale of what, it, what we're trying to do. On the technical side, you mentioned we delivered benchmarks for two products, an intermediate product, an MHP, a mixed hydroxide, which is that intermediate we spoke about last year, which allows us to make um, uh, a cobalt-rich MHP, which is a uh, is an unheard of product. Um, most MHPs are nickel-rich and typically a 20 to 2, 25 to 3 style ratio nickel to cobalt. Our ratio is 37% cobalt and 7% nickel. So it it's, it's so unique as to be valuable in terms of um, its ability to blend in the cathode. We also uh, produced a benchmark cobalt sulfate product, which is the precursor-ready product, uh, at a 20.8% cobalt purity. So that's a very high spec. Uh, and we think that with the right partners, we could actually improve on that purity. And, and, and purity is king in, in the cathode world. Middle of the year, I said we got on with business. We delivered a project update 2020, as we called it, effectively an enhanced and cost-optimized PFS. We stripped CapEx. We, we significantly improved OPEX. So we now have a $9 C1 cash cost for a cobalt sulfate we have a $12 all-in sustain for the cobalt sulfate. And that's a very, very, very tight um, series of economics. Um, and we've maintained that low capital intensity. So the projects as it stands 
is about a third to a quarter of the capital intensity if I use a metric of capital over cobalt units than any other greenfield project in the world. Um, and then on, on the pilot plant and our ability to prove on a metallurgical or a larger scale metallurgical proof, we started designing, sourcing and ultimately receiving major equipment. So uh, as we speak today, that plant is practically complete. Uh, that's a term we use internally. That's We just need to energise circuits, do our first chemical fill, and we'll be commissioning within the next three to four weeks on, a, on our way forward to proving up the project as well as enhancing partners. Just one final thing um, before I go, and I'm very proud of this. We held a community day in, in Broken Hill in mid-December. We invited 50 uh, of the local community who are um, effectively project supporters, have been with us both council members, business members, et cetera, and other interested citizens. And um, I'm really proud to say that that went well. It's it's received very well locally. And um, I, I'm, I'm really um, looking forward to our interaction with the community and hiring as well as interacting with the local businesses there going forward. Okay. Well, I mean, wow. I just, sorry, the, 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 the bit that kind of stuck out for me there was the, the, the nine bucks number. Uh, when we first originally talked to you, you were back in March last year talking about 12. So that's a yes. significant uh, reduction um, in the PFS. Um, so t- talk to me about the process. Could, I mean, we, we probably need to remind people that, you know, um, Broken Hill, you, you positioning that as a sort of top 10 globally in, in terms of size. It's fairly, fairly low grade, but you get your recoveries are quite high, right? So you, you're, it, it's, it's a significant contributor in terms of supply globally. So that's, that's all great news. But the, the PFS takes you so far. You said there, if we can get the right partners on board, we might be able to improve things further around the economics. So what type of partners are you talking about? Because, uh, you know, the, the the pilot plant allows you to kind of get samples out there. And I don't know how many people you're sending that out to or hope, hope to engage with, but you must have a, a specific type of partner in mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a, Look, it's a good question. Um, we 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 targeted and knocked off a lot of the low-hanging fruit in that project update I talked about. So we, we, as you say, we went from a $12 C1 to a $9 C1. Why a partner is important for a number of reasons, but specifically with further cost optimization, is our ability to prove on scale improved recoveries from this point. So we've assumed an 85% recovery from, from in-ground to payable. We know that number on the lab bench can go as high as ninety percent. We hope that we can split the difference one, two, three percent more. But we need scale proof. We need investment in 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 the um, in the processing plant and particularly in the demonstration plant. There are also a number of other optimizations in in the sense of uh, uh, energy optimization. So studies with respect to potentially sourcing gas, which is a big. Uh, infrastructure uh, issue for us at Broken Hill. If we source gas from the Moomba to Adelaide pipe, which is about 250 kilometres away, we again compress our energy costs. And energy is a big factor. It's about 23% of our cash costs. So with the right partner, not only can we do the scale and rigour of test work that that additional capital and focus will make, we can also make the right product. As I said earlier, different um, battery makers have different purity specs. For us to align ourselves the battery maker who is basically at the forefront of development batteries in the next five or 10 years, we can make the right spec and optimize the cost inputs. With the right scale of partner, we can also look at these capital um, additions, for example, the gas pipeline and being involved 
in a community of users, which will benefit us ultimately on OPEX as well. So there's a number of these uh, tweaks that we can put into place that'll make a lower cost product, a better quality of product, and probably as importantly, a product that's aligned with what the market wants in the next five to 10 years. Okay, I mean, so you, you've talked about um, you know producing the intermediate, the, the mixed hydroxide product, but the other thing we've talked about in the past is the fact that the price of cobalt isn't necessarily the price of cobalt, right? Because it's hard to work out, it's hard to define. So what can you tell us um, about what your margins could be going forward? Because you, you've reduced your, your C1 cost, fantastic, right? But this is about what people are prepared to pay, whether it be on, on contract or, or at spot going forward. So how do you plan, given the fact that the market is, I say we keep talking about opaque market, how do you make plans with partners? How do you write contracts with partners uh, in that kind of environment? Okay, um, I'll answer the question, but I'll just take a step back. It depends on the, on the nature of the partner. If you're a battery participant, you don't overly care so much what the long-term pricing is, the long-term margins. You want X product of this spec at this particular cash cost, and you want it for a 15, 20-year life. So it's effectively a feedstock to a much larger capital investment downstream. And bear in mind, the ratio of capital deployed at the mine level in battery materials to to the actual uh, battery um, uh, facilities is about one to 20, one to 30. So for every dollar we have, there's a huge downstream investment. So um, that's important for a battery maker. They just want long, high quality, um, low cost cobalt uh, and, and consistency. To answer your question about margins, if our all in sustain is around $12, and let's assume we can get it around $11-ish or thereabouts, with some further optimization we talked about, the long-term cobalt price, so this is the 30-year rear view mirror, which doesn't include really a lot of um, influence from the battery market other than the last couple of years, but on a long-dated basis, not a lot of influence. Long-term price is $25 US pound. Um, today in, in the market, which has multiple um, benchmarks because of the you know, various products, the one I'll use in the in the chemist, chemical world is cobalt sulfate. The latest cobalt sulfate price is around 19. The latest metal prices around 17 in Europe. And we've recently had some transactions over $20 a pound in China. Now there's a bit of a China stocking effect ahead of Chinese New Year. So there's a little bit of a, a bit of heat in that number, but I'd say comfortably $19 co, uh, metal, $19 sulfate on its way, I think, comfortably in the next two to three years to, to, um, to long-term and then potentially up. So if you just assume the long-term number, 25, all in sustain 11 to 12, you can see you're making a fantastic cash margin um, through cycle. Even today at 19 bucks, we're making a fantastic margin, but we need to be able to justify the initial, obviously the initial capital on the way through to that. Absolutely, well, you can, you can make an exceptional margin on, on the basis that you've just outlined if the cost of your money to get through pilot plant phase and build the full plant into you know, commercial production uh, isn't onerous. So hence the need for partners, picking the right partners. So coming back to that question is you must have a, a view of the type of partner that you want. It's got to have a balance sheet which can help you out presumably. You've got to construct an agreement which works for you and for them as well. 
Yeah, look, um, I'll share our view on that. It's a, it's a really uh, important discussion for an up-and-coming business like ourselves. There's a trap among some <clears throat> developers to get into bed and straight away look at offtake because offtake's easy um, and offtake gets you cash up front. It front ends your, your requirements and ultimately you can live off that, those, those down payments for a number of years and not have to go to the market. Where you pay the piper is, the question is, has, have you ultimately impaired the project by giving away um, at, a, at 10, 20 cents in the dollar your cobalt streaming later on? And that's a major trap. What we want to do is, and we have started doing, is put uh, the, the idea to partners that we're all about project equity first. So come in and look at sharing project equity, sharing ownership, and with that will be a commensurate equity, oh, sorry, offtake. Now, whether they scale that offtake above their equity ownership, that's another discussion we're certainly happy to have. But equity comes first. With equity, then the owners, um, the onus on the partner will be that that partner will then have to create their a balance sheet effect to us to help us guarantee our portion of equity going forward. And that's as simple as, for example, completion guarantees where their balance sheet steps into the market in front of the bank and says, we'll guarantee completion by X date to these specs, otherwise we'll take the overrun. Another way of doing that is, is a, uh, effectively a cash overrun facility of X percent, so it's a contingency that they'll guarantee, and then so on and so forth. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a pecking order of, of instruments that partners can provide to us, through us to the bank, that will effectively backstop the project as a whole. Now, in that process, we will have to effectively sell portions of, of the of the project at below long-term MPV value. Otherwise, the partners wouldn't be interested. So there's a point you have to, to accept. And in that process, you may have to give away beyond their equity share of offtake. But at the end of the day, that's okay as long as you're getting enough value from the revenue from that foundation period, that first three or four years is absolutely critical from a financing point of view, that will then allow you the coverage and the, and the, and the covenant satisfaction that's required from, from the bank. So we're playing a game where we're thinking about step eight in order to understand the consequences of step one. And we've hired some very smart people from the um, investment banking side, in fact, from your neck of the woods in London, um, in, in, in resources where there's a wealth of experience with this, this sort of a dilemma to help us understand what the next two or three steps look like and but the same token have a commercially attractive package for a partner. Yeah, and we, we, yeah, we've, we've seen this in, in nickel and lithium. Um, it's, it's definitely the way forward in terms of how you go about constructing it. The, th- those are much bigger uh Commodities in terms of, of volume, you know, you, you, it's quite a small market, cobalt, right? There's not that many players. Uh, if you bring the ethical component into play, it's 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 even smaller because that that seems to be one of the drivers here in terms of you know these big funds. We're talking about ethical investing, green investing, and you know that's a big part of I think your message to the market. So press release, um, you know, to the, to um, to that message, uh, I think it was end of end of last year. Um, the other thing is, because of your size, are you almost too small for some of the big players to um, care about? Are you? Do you meet their criteria? It, it, size is in terms of our, our, our headstock. Yeah, look, I, I think 
the answer to that is absolutely. We we were marketing the company in Q4, knowing that within a quarter or so we'd be on this um, uh, metallurgical proof via the plant. And the feedback was, well, we really love a position in this because we have faith in the cobalt price, but you know, you, your market cap's too small. Now, uh, thankfully, that's being adjusted as we speak. So there's that to consider. Um, and I think that uh, the irony is that as we grow and grow into, I think, more of a normalised value, even without much of the upside built in. So let's assume that cobalt prices just tick along to where they are. Um, I think we'll more and more come into the, the purview of some of these funds, particularly with large-scale proof. And once we have a conversation which allows us to name partners and then hopefully partners come in and contribute either on a non-monetary basis with some support and but hopefully longer term with, with some monetary support, I think that'll unlock us in terms of the headstock. Um, and, and given the MPV on the projects, you know, 600 million at a $27 cobalt price, and the leverage obviously is, is material from that point, I'm pretty comfortable that the, 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 you know, the stock price will look after itself for the next one or two years. Yeah, no, I don't know. I'd agree with that. And that's certainly the case towards the end of last year for you guys. But um, Australia and China not having good relations uh, at the moment, is that restricting your ability to have conversations with all the people that you want to talk to? No, actually, um, because our strategy is to integrate the mine refinery together and make a sulfate, um, our, product, our go to market was always to avoid the middleman refining. Um, complex that exists predominantly in China. So about 80% of, of intermediate cobalt is, is refined in, in China. Um, that was just a decision on margin back three or four years ago. We wanted to keep the margin and instead of selling a 20 cent co- or 20% cobalt uh, payable product, we wanted to sell an 80, 90, and in the case of the sulfate, a, a basically a parity with the cobalt metal price. That basically from a commercial point of view allows us to deal directly with battery makers, battery makers in, you know, in, in Europe, Korea, Japan, et cetera. So our commercial strategy and our hunt for the margin effectively allowed us in the first instance to sidestep the Chinese uh, refining industry. And that's in hindsight, particularly with what's happening at the moment, is, has been very, very helpful for us. Okay. So you're talking to all the people that you want to be talking to at the moment. What's the timeline there between them receiving these samples? And I know, um, you know, that's, that's, really important to this and them actually making decisions about moving to the next stage and, and what would that next stage be? A technical guy would tell you it takes 12 months to probably 18 months for us to really qualify as a supplier for some of these major precursor and cathode guys. So it's a long time. They want to see multiple product on scale and they want to make sure that what you produce is repeatable. So it's basically a bludgeoning process of here's another 10 kilos, here's another 10 kilos. And they're looking at quality, so impurities, they're looking at the crystallography in terms of the uh, the sulfate, the homogeneity, the consistency within that structure. But yeah, you're looking at about 12 month process. Parallel with that is all the DD that goes with your business. You know, are they signing up with a partner who's credible and can produce that that product on a longer date? Um, But I think, that's the technical acceptance, the due diligence. I think the commercial acceptance with the backdrop of what we've discussed is much more near dated. Um, I, I'm comfortable, I'm comfortable that, uh, and this is me, not my company's view, but I'm comfortable that within the next 12 months we'll be there commercially, uh, particularly as we start putting the product to the market on, on the pilot scale. And then later next year, we, we have a much larger demonstration plant 
which will allow um, particularly battery makers to make physical test batteries from that product. And that's really the final technical hurdle in order to get into that you know, pre-qualification. Mining, commodities, it's all about timing. Does what you've just outlined in terms of the deliverables allow you to hit this cycle right? I, I think so. Look, um, uh, internal view is that 20 next year we'll see a tightening. So we're still going through, a, if I look at the market balance, we've still got a fair bit of surface stock to get through. So I don't think 2021 will be the year we see some big leap in the, in the, in the prices. We are interesting, interestingly, as a sideline, we are seeing longer dated contracts uh, coming to the market, which I think is symptomatic of demand coming through. But you know, we can talk about that on another occasion. Our internal view is 2023 is really the inflection point. So that's still a couple of years away. And that's the point at which the cobalt price will start to put significant pressure on sourcing and, and security of supply, et cetera. And that's consistent externally what we're hearing with, with some of our commercial partners. The near data, they're relatively comfortable, AB at getting less so with some of this demand coming through. But really 23 onwards, the scarcity factor comes in. And what happens at that point? Because I sound fascinated by this when people talk about ethical investing, green investing and so forth. But when, when push comes to shove and the supply doesn't meet demand, that kind of goes away, doesn't it? Yeah, so you get a, you get a, an adjustment in terms of the demand side. So you 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 get an acceleration of, 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 of 15, for example. Um, you certainly on the, on the non-battery side, the lower economic value side, the hard-facing, um, you know, um, um, tools, the magnetic tools, the dyes, all that, you'll start to go elsewhere. So that's 40% of today's market has some substitutability. But unfortunately, of that 40, you've still got a core rump there of super alloys. Now, you're probably going to get some relief there in the next few years, given COVID and its effect on, we talked about airframes and, and gas turbines. Um, so you get some substitution, but substitution within the batteries themselves, yeah, on the ESS side, the energy story side, you can go to an LFP formulation or, or a, a, a flow battery. Um, I think in consumer electronics, given the 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 you know the, the two or three or I don't know, 10, 15 cents worth of cobalt you've got in your iPhone, I don't think that's in a rush to be subbed. And then really the where the rubber hits the road, excuse my terminology, is the EV market. And you can accelerate your fifting, you can accelerate transition to LFP batteries on some of those niches, but it's going to be hard. And at the end of the day, as a consumer, you're paying X dollars. Are you happy to take risk on a lower quality outcome to try and save, you know, pick a number, $500,000 off the sticker price? And that's a pretty, that $500,000, that's a pretty horrendous outcome from the cobalt point of view. So uh, in my, my mind, I think the price flow-on effect from a much higher cobalt price is one that the market will ultimately have to bear in the battery space um, because there are no alternatives. Yeah, and just following on the same, from the same thing, it's usually you know, if the consumer is willing to pay for it, the, kind of, the problem goes away. But if people are trying to cut costs, obviously substitution does come into play. But let's look at the other side of that coin, which is with this ethical investing, this green investing, um, and I'm seeing this in a couple of other commodities where people are talking the language of, um, you know, car carbon credits and, and, and other, other kind of, um, <clears throat> you know, policies that have been put into place, which um, allow 
you to kind of survive because there's a kind of buy from buy from you know, survive. It allows you to compete on a slightly unfair way because there's a bifurcation of pricing. If you can prove throughout the supply chain that you know, in terms of source of origin, all the way through the supply chain, that it's been mined ethically, it's been processed ethically. There's been no blending. You know, so does that happen in cobalt now? Will it happen in cobalt? Look, there's a natural transition. We've seen. Um, subsidies and incentives uh, uh, at a government level uh, for a number of years now. So let's let's go back some years ago. So with um, emission standards on vehicles, uh, as they tighten over a period of time, and we initially introduced some hybrids and 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 um, low carbon emission vehicles. So there was a an inherent subsidy in that program by by penalty. If you failed to make the portfolio standard of emissions, you were penalised by the regulator. That happened particularly in the EU, where my understanding was that was very onerous for the likes of you know VW and, and, and others. So some years ago, we transited from effectively a penalty slash, slash subsidy um, by government. So penalty in terms of emissions subsidy, in terms of, in terms of industry subsidies. Um, last year, we saw an acceleration of those subsidies to direct purchase. And some of those subsidies went into industry. So, for example, France is still negotiating a massive uh, one-off, um, effectively retooling for Renault in order for it to become the national champion and retool it towards a, a low-carbon future. In terms of industry participants and market dynamics, the customers have now, for a number of years, signaled their ability to pay a premium for ethical sourcing for low-carbon footprint, but they're market forces. And they've been in from day one, but they're accelerating now as these um, these products that are available to target those particular needs become more mainstream. So EVs 10 years ago were one or two models, effectively glorified golf carts. Today, they're, they're uh, adequate substitutes and, and, and quality substitutes for ICE. So your ability as a consumer to demand a lower carbon footprint um, the industry to demand that is now there. So those market forces are in play and they'll continue to benefit those participants. And we're one of those beneficiaries, clearly. So we benefit from the, the decarbonisation angle, but we also benefit from the ethical sourcing side of that. For us to prove source and provenance shouldn't be difficult. And we should be able to get a ultimately a premium for a product that the battery maker can prove to a consumer electronics business or an EV business that this is an ethical source of cobalt. Right. Talk to me about money, though, at the moment, because you've talked, you talked about some um, <clears throat> federal government grants, which is great, and you had a bit of cash last time we spoke. Have you got enough cash to see through to this, this pilot phase or have things been delayed somewhat and you may need to go to market? No, look, we identified long lead time items for the pilot, which was our, effectively our leaching circuit, our autoclave circuit. No. That gear was was designed in middle of 2019. It was ordered in Q4 19. It arrived around Chinese New Year. Just to give you some idea. Last year, and we actually got it into Australia before COVID actually became an issue here for us. So, the ability for us to look at long lead time items um, has meant that today, plus or minus a week, we're on track for commissioning in late February, and therefore product. The capital raise you touched on last year, middle uh, Q3 last year, was entirely to get us through this this um, uh, this pilot plant. So we're spending two and a half million dollars locally on that in the Broken Hill area. 
it gives us in Lego terms sufficient building blocks to prove a small scale. Um, and that'll get us through till mid-year. And indeed, we've got enough cash to keep treading water, but we don't believe in treading water. We haven't done that in our existence. What we want to do then is move on to a larger demonstration scale. So the demonstration scale plant is around $10 million, of which the two and a half has already been spent. As I said, it's a, it's a Lego block concept. So there's another seven and a half incremental. And that gets us into a two to three tonne proof of in terms of product production of the intermediate MHP or the sulfates going forward. Um, so that scale of money will get us through all the way this year and making sure that we can tick all the boxes both in our feasibility study but also towards our commercial uh, de-risking. Right, so remind me where that money's coming from. Well, we, we have to look to raise that mid-year or so. But would that be through partner or would that be through market? Well, that's the $64 question. So we've intentionally front-end loaded the smaller uh, pilot plant in order for us to go out and see if there's a partner that will help us with our funding. Look, I'll be really clear on this. If I have my way and if interest is there, we won't be going back to the market to raise a cent. And that's the risk. If you're an investor and you look at us and you think, ah, look, how do I time my, my entry if there are come raise, you know, in 2021? My goal is to make sure we don't come back to the market. My goal is to make sure that we can prove ourselves up, find a partner for which these sort of funds are very small fry in order for them to be get, getting a first mover optionality over a project of this quality and find a partner that gets us all the way through the FS. Um, and that's that's the goal. And I'm pretty sure that we'll have the tools to do that in the next two months. Okay. Well, I, I look forward to hearing about it. You know, we're learning a lot about it. We're spending a lot of time in the cobalt space at the moment. I think it's getting exciting. I think 2021 is, it'll be about who does what. Um, and we might even get a sense of where the, the uh, cobalt pricing's going to get to this year. Who knows? Um, Joe, appreciate your time as always. Um, thank you so much for uh, coming on and talking us through your project. Um, stay in touch, right? Thank you. And it's always a pleasure to, uh, to talk with you, Matthew. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.